Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Well, good morning, church. We're so glad that you joined us today. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Hanford, and we're we're excited that you joined us. We, we are continuing through our Galatians series this morning. We're actually wrapping up our Galatians series. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to make you aware of the fact that we're starting a brand new series starting next week. Uh, that series is called The Heart of Prayer. And what we're going to do is we are going to look at Jesus uh, teaching his followers how to pray. And we're going to kind of break that up line by line, section by section, uh, and talk about this idea of prayer and who we pray to, and how it is that we should pray, and even why it is uh, that we should pray as well. And so I'm really, really excited to take a look at that, especially in a season that has been really, really difficult for a lot of people, that we seem like every, every <laughs> week, day, hour, um, that we are, uh, we are turning around and having to face a brand new challenge in our lives. And so I'm really excited to take a look at that. Uh, and talk about really the stability that prayer uh, is able to give us in our lives. So that begins, uh, begins next week. Uh, so that being said, we have been studying the book of Galatians since July. Um, and so we've really been, been going through it verse by verse, line by line, and talking about what the Apostle Paul really did want the church in Galatia to be able to know. But, but today we are wrapping up the letter. Uh, and, and the first verse, we're just going to jump right in. The first verse that we're covering here is in Galatians 6. It's, it's verse 11. And it says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So Paul now takes the pen in his own hand and pens the conclusion to his letter. Now, I know a lot of you are probably thinking to yourself, wait, time out. I thought Paul was writing this entire thing himself. We need to pause here because Paul often, just so you know, Paul often ends his letters by signing his own name, kind of like his, his signature overall. At the end of a letter that you would write to somebody that you know or somebody that you love, uh, you would write, you would sign your name at the bottom of the letter. And that's the way the people getting the letter know that the letter was really from him or the letter's really uh, from you. But this time, Paul doesn't just sign his name. Paul writes a conclusion and writes a summary of the entire book. And he does so in large letters. See, this entire time, Paul has actually been utilizing a scribe to be able to write this letter for him. And so while Paul is dictating the letter, Paul is the one responsible. Paul, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, is responsible for penning this letter. There is a scribe who is actually doing the physical writing. And so now Paul is saying here, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He writes a conclusion. He writes a summary to the entire book, which is really these last few verses at the end of chapter 6. So why the large letters? Some people think it's because Paul had bad eyesight, which there is evidence for. Okay, uh, that, that is distinctly a possibility. But it's also possible that Paul is taking the pen in hand at the end of this letter and underlining and highlighting his central message. It's the only time in any of his letters that he provides a concluding summary of his book in this way. Right? And so if you were to look at like uh, the letter to the church in Rome, so the, 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 the book of Romans or, or, or any of his other epistles, Paul doesn't ever do this. Okay, this is the only time that we see Paul, who's probably very impassioned about what it is that he is writing about, saying, 
all right, scribe, give me, <laughs> give me that pen. I am going to finish uh, this letter the way that I want to finish this letter. Kind of like for those of you uh, who are familiar with the story of, uh, of John Hancock, right, one of the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence. If you look down the Declaration of Independence, you know, you see the whole letter. And then at the bottom, you see all of these really, really small signatures. You can kind of make out some of them and that sort of thing. But right in the middle, there is a massive name, and the name says John Hancock right there. And the way the story goes, and there's a lot of debate whether or not that this is actually true and this is actually the reason that he wrote his name uh, so big, but the, the reason is is that uh, he, he wanted to sign his name so it was large enough so the king of England wouldn't have to put on his spectacles to see who it was that wrote it. So this is kind of the same thing that Paul is doing here. Paul's like, look, I'm going to sign my name. I'm going to finish this letter with authority. And it's going to be penned in my own hand with really, really large letters. saying, look, pay attention to these last couple things that I am saying. It is me, Paul, saying them now. And really what he says is this. Is what, mo- what is most important is that you avoid false gospels. And instead... Paul says, hey, look, instead of these false gospels, instead of boasting about yourself, boast in the cross. What is most important for you individually and you as a church is two things. One, that you avoid the false gospel of self-salvation. This idea that you, like, you can do enough good things, you can follow the law enough to be able to save yourself. So he's saying, one, don't do that. And two, that instead you boast only and exclusively in the cross. So if we were to sum up these last couple verses, that's really what it is that it would be, is avoid the false gospel of self-salvation and that you should boast only and exclusively in the cross. That's what Paul is telling him. So the first thing that Paul says as as he picks up his pen is that he warns us, and he warns us against a tendency that we all have. He warns us against a, a danger that can and will seep into our churches. And the danger is this, that we will want to contribute to our salvation. The danger is that we will try to add to the gospel. And by trying to add to the gospel, what we actually end up doing is, is subtracting from the gospel and it ends up destroying us. It ends up destroying our souls because what we try to do is like, God, look, I'm good. Like, look at all of these good things that I've done. Look at all of these good things that I've done, God, and I did them for you in order for me to gain salvation. And all the while, God is sitting there thinking to himself, like, I provided enough for you. Stop trying to add to what it is that that I've already sent my son to accomplish on your behalf. You know, our greatest danger, our greatest mistake is that we look to ourselves and our obedience rather than to Jesus. You know, and, and, and really this is kind of a Western Christianity type of thing. It tends to be like, hey, look, we're Americans. We can, we can, whatever we put our minds to, we are able to accomplish this stuff. And so look how good I am. Look how obedient I can be. Look at, look at me waking up early and, and praying and looking at, look at me waking up early and, and reading my Bible and look at me evangelizing to everybody. And God, look at all these great things that I did. And I'm following what you told me to do, God. Like I'm following what I told you, like, like what you told me to do. Look, have I earned my way towards salvation yet? And we try to do that over and over and over again. 
We try to look to ourselves and look to our own obedience rather than to Jesus. So how does Paul say this? Where am I getting this from? Starting in verse 12, it says this. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid the persecuted for the cross of Christ. Or excuse me, to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul really is saying here there's this, there's this counterfeit gospel that is going to seep into our lives and into our churches. That it's actually one of the greatest dangers that we face. The counterfeit gospel is that, that we think we have to contribute to our own salvation in some way. That we have to contribute to our own acceptance with God through our own efforts, through our own abilities. All through Galatians, the entire book, Paul has been warning against this danger. It's a clear and present danger and one that seems to be built right into our hearts. The entire book of Galatians talks about this. Actually, before we started recording, I was joking with the guys in the back who, are, who have done an incredible job being able to, to put our messages together and get them online and all that stuff. But I was joking with them and said, guys, guess what, we're, guess what we're preaching about today? And the answer is, of course, Jesus plus nothing over and over and over again. So this isn't anything new that we're sharing, but Paul is like, all right, look, if you haven't heard me enough, if you didn't hear me the first time, let me remind you what it is that you are supposed to do. You are supposed to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone, period. That's what Paul is saying. Have you ever, like, have, have you ever driven a car that's like the alignment is out? Right? Or maybe like you blew a tire and you didn't know about it. I remember when I was 16 years old, I was driving my very first car. It was a 1982 black Toyota pickup. It was more of a tin can than it was a car. It was a straight four-cylinder, feel the power. Enough for me to be able to peel out, though, going outside of my high school parking lot. So I was happy with it. But I was driving on the freeway about 10 miles, 10 miles away from my house or so. And all of a sudden, uh, I felt my tire blow. And I had no clue what to do. I was 16 years old. And so I'm going and it's, I'm continuing to drive on the freeway. I'm continuing to drive on the freeway. And I notice that my car continues to kind of veer off to the right, continues to veer off to the right, continues to veer off to the right. And I'm like, I'm not going to pull over on the side of the freeway because I don't want to die. I had no clue what I was doing. Like I said, I was 16 years old. And so it kept veering and veering and I just kept having to kind of pull it back on until I was able to exit the freeway and then I ended up actually driving on, on the tire for another mile until I got to where I was supposed to go, which was the mall, before I could call my dad and say, Dad, what am I supposed to do? And he said, where are you? I said, the mall. And he said, how long have you been driving on that tire? And I said, probably way too long. So anyway, but I could just continue to veer off and I continue to veer off over and over and over again. It's the same thing when your car is out of alignment. Your car wants to continue to veer kind of over here and you spend all your time trying to keep the car on the road. The danger that Paul is talking about here is actually the same danger, that our hearts are out of alignment and continually want to veer off towards this idea of self-salvation. It takes a lot of focus to resist this drift and to keep our eyes on the road. The danger is that we will try to kind of impress people by means of the flesh is the way that Paul puts it. 
And he's talking about something slightly different than, some, than, than what it is that we are going to incur. At this point, Paul is talking about those people who were, who were Judaizers, is what they're called, teachers who came in after Paul and said, hey, if you, if you want to gain salvation, you need to, you need to believe in Jesus, but also follow the law, which includes circumcision. And so Paul is saying, by me, you want, they, these people are trying to impress people by means of the flesh. They're trying to impress people by how well they can follow the law. Now for us, it's a little bit different. You know, the danger is doing something external that we think is going to contribute to our salvation, something that is going to impress other people oftentimes. It's doing something that we think adds to what Jesus has done in order to earn acceptance with God. And in Galatians, it's circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law, but we have our own versions as well. John Ortberg actually writes about it. John Ortberg wrote this. He said, the church I grew up in had its boundary markers. A prideful or resentful pastor could have kept his job, but if the pastor was caught smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired. Not because anyone in the church actually thought smoking was a worse sin than pride or resentment, but because smoking defined who was in our subculture and who wasn't, or, and who wasn't was a boundary marker. As I was growing up, having a quiet time became a popular boundary marker, a measure of spiritual growth. If someone had asked me about my spiritual life, I would immediately think, have I been having regular and lengthy quiet times? My initial thought was not, am I growing more loving toward God and toward people? See, what he's talking about here really is that boundary markers change from culture to culture. But but the dynamic really does remain the same. If people don't experience authentic transformation, if people don't experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ and recognize that they have to do nothing, they have done nothing to, to contribute to that grace, done nothing to contribute to that salvation, if people don't experience that authentic transformation, then their faith will deteriorate really into a search for the boundary markers that tend to masquerade as evidence from, from a changed life. And so we think to ourselves, man, and, it, and it's, it's self-conscious, it's subconscious, but we think to ourselves, man, I'm going, these people, I'm going to impress these people by means of the flesh, by the things that I am doing, by the boundary markers that I am hitting. Have I told you yet that I've gone on a, a, a long-term mission trip? And can I impress you a little bit by how many times that I've been to camp? Did I tell you that I've, I've placed my faith in, in Christ again? Did I tell you that, uh, that, man, I haven't gotten baptized once. I've gotten baptized 15 times I'm so holy, right? It's these, these means, these, these kind of benchmarks that we put into place for us to be able to feel good about our progress with Christ, to feel good about our salvation with Christ, and that's a problem. But a lot of people think to ourselves, well, what's, what's the problem? The danger is is that we will pick some external behavior as contribution to our salvation. And slowly, without even realizing it, we begin to trust in our own ability to be saved rather than in the finished work of Christ. It becomes about us rather than about Jesus. And there's multiple problems with that. First, Paul says that the motivation here is all wrong. The motivation is completely and totally wrong. The other day, um, uh, there's, a, there's a story that I have here uh, from, a, from a pastor, right? And he's talking about him and his wife. And he says, you know, the other day, they were dividing the duties that they have between them. 
okay? And, and one of them had to drive their kids somewhere, and one of them had to help the other one with homework, okay? And, and uh, the, the, the pastor didn't really want to go for a drive, but when the options were laid out clearly, whether they were going to drive somewhere or help their kids with homework, the pastor was like, look, I'm going to start looking for the keys, right? The, the, the motivation there was external. They were motivated by something, by something they didn't want to do, something they didn't want to trust in. So Paul sees the option here as the gospel on one hand, trusting, trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation on one hand, or some external self-salvation project over here on the other. And he instantly recognizes what many of us will do Many of us will do anything we can to avoid trusting Jesus plus nothing. We will try to add to that. We'll try to add to, to our salvation. Secondly, there's something within all of us that kind of box at trusting Jesus, or trusting, trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That we don't have that complete, that complete trust in Christ alone. Our motivation is wrong. Our motivation is to avoid the harsh truth that there is nothing we can contribute in order to be accepted by God. There's nothing we can contribute. Paul says that those who are pushing for this idea of kind of works righteousness, that, that I can get to heaven by the works that I've done, that's the idea of works righteousness, those people who are pushing for that can't themselves keep the standard they're arguing for. He actually says not even those who are circumcised keep the law. We hear about these things all the time, all the time, especially in the political climate that we find ourselves in now, right? We hear things like a politician who, who battles corruption and, and he ends up passing new laws in order to make sure that for, for the good of the city, right, and a few years later is convicted of the very laws that that politician actually enacted. Or a pastor, you see this a lot, I mean, you see this a lot, a pastor rails against a certain type of sin, preaches against a certain type of sin from the pulpit, and eventually it comes out that he has secretly been practicing that sin for years. The irony is that the very people who argue for self-salvation, those people that Paul is talking about, are the very same people who don't measure up to their own standards because none of us do. See, Paul is saying here the greatest danger the church faces is that it will veer off without knowing it to a false gospel. Not that we're just going to pick up one day and start a brand new religion. But we have slowly but surely decided that, oh, this looks good, this looks good, this looks good. And pretty soon we turn around and we're way, way, way off the road because we veered so far away. And really, we're always tempted to substitute this idea of a message of, of self-improvement and self-salvation for the gospel. That's super prominent today. Super prominent is people are looking for how can I be better? How can I do better? How can I lead well? How can I, whatever it may be. And we look to this idea of self-improvement, that if I can just be better, I'll feel better about myself. If I can just be better, I'll feel better about myself. But this is, that, that, that's a false gospel. There's no truth in that at all. It's been written that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. The only thing 
that we contribute to our own salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. We have nothing but need. That's all we have is need. And at the end of this letter, Paul picks up his pen to emphasize the importance of avoiding the false gospel of self-salvation. Avoiding, avoiding the false gospel of, of trying to accomplish more things in order to get to heaven. Avoid trying to earn God's approval through your own righteousness. That's what Paul is telling them over and over and over about it. But what does Paul say that we should do instead? Good question. He says this, boast exclusively in the cross. If you're going to boast about something, if you're going to talk about how great you are, if you're going to talk about anything that tries to, tries to build something else up, he said, don't talk about yourself. Because ultimately you're going to fall short. There's a, uh, a common phrase oftentimes uh, with pastors and rule, like rules as you're speaking and that sort of thing, right? Is that, hey, never make yourself the hero of the story. You never want to give people an opportunity to look back and say, man, that, that pastor really was, really was full of himself. And that pastor really was overly confident there, kind of arrogant even, you never, ever want to do that. We don't want to boast about ourselves, and not just pastors, but Christians as well. Paul is talking to a church here. Don't boast about yourselves. Boast exclusively in the cross. And not only should we avoid the false gospel of self-salvation, but we should also boast exclusively in this, in the cross. And this is what's most important. Paul writes this in Galatians 6, 14 and 15. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Okay, to understand this passage, we need to understand a couple of things. First, um, we all boast in something. Every single one of us, we all boast in something. In some accomplishment, some characteristic, some relationship, whatever it may be. Don't believe me? Log on to Facebook, log on to Instagram. For your Gen Zers, log on to TikTok, whatever it may be. Go see how people promote themselves. Even if it's, even if it's you know, just the family photos that you put up. Right? You never put a family photo up of like you in mid-sneeze. Why? Because you want to put your best foot forward. You want to look great on those social media sites. And without doing it, there is boasting that is happening there. And I'm not saying never post or anything like that. I'm just saying if you are logging on to social media, if you're posting regularly on social media, make sure you're being authentic about it. Just be honest. And I'm not saying you have to post a selfie right when you wake up in the morning or anything like that. Please don't do that. Okay, but if you are going to boast, boast in the cross alone, not about your own accomplishments, not about how great you are. And social media tends to just be a highlight reel of people's lives. Sorry, that was a, a side note. But an exaggerated example of this, greater than social media, uh, is the, the former North Korean leader, Kim Jong-il, right? Kim Jong-il, he, I, I think he, uh, he officially passed away in 2014, I want to say. Maybe it was 2011. I don't know. Someone in the comments correct me. But uh, reportedly, uh, uh, Kim took daily intensive memory training that involved memorizing huge amounts of information, massive amounts of information. Kim was quoted as saying, I remember all computer codes and telephones that workers are using now. Every single one. Now, I remember all the codes 
and all the telephone numbers. Actually, at a meeting in 2002, uh, North Korean officials said they were impressed when Kim recalled all of their phone numbers with, quote, lightning speed. Kim's memory wasn't the actual only amazing attribute that he claimed, though. He also claimed he wrote operas, he piloted jet fighters, he produced movies, and while all of those skills are they're, they're a little bit more believable, North Korea, their propaganda actually stretched really, really far, really, really far. They stretched their credibility when it stated that, uh, when it started talking about the idea of Kim Jong-il's golfing prowess, which is one of my favorite, my favorite stories. The story goes the first time, the first time that Kim Jong-il ever played a round of golf, North Korea's leader shot 11 holes in one. 11 holes in one. And that's, pre- that's pretty incredible, if you ask me. Especially being someone who has tried to play golf, and I've realized that golf is one of those sports that's way too expensive to be terrible at. Like, that's a really impressive round of golf. And obviously, we all laugh at that. We all know that, hey, there is no way that this is actually true. But, but Kim Jong-il's boasts are kind of an extreme version of what we all do. We, we, we look to some accomplishment that we've had, some talent that we have to validate our importance, to say that we measure up. And the boasts, they are, th- these boasts are ridiculous, but a lot of the ones that we put forth are incredibly ridiculous too because we're trying to inflate our own sense of self-worth. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at all of the things that I've been able to accomplish. Everybody boasts in something. Everybody boasts in something. It could be popularity. It could be intellect. It could be appearance. It could be influence. It could be income. It could be job performance. It could be your family. Whatever. We all boast in something. It could be your religious accomplishments, like we talked about a little bit earlier. We all boast in something, but we also need to understand something else. Our boasting, our obsession, our identity, those things should ultimately come from one place only, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about to the church in Galatia. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is kind of strange for us. You know, today we think of the cross as kind of something noble, something beautiful. But in Paul's day, it was the, it was the ugliest thing possible. And you couldn't mention the cross in a polite society. The Romans considered the cross to be degrading and disgusting. It's the same way that probably a lot of us would look at like an electric chair or a guillotine or something like that. That it's degrading and it's disgusting. But Paul says that this is his boast. Paul looked at the cross and saw that God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. That's That's what Paul was talking about here. He looked to the cross and saw his salvation. Christ has paid the full price for it. Christ has paid the full price for our salvation. We've been forgiven and we've been justified. God's wrath has been turned away and we now stand innocent before a perfect God because of the cross. And then we have to understand what the cross cross does to us because when we boast in the cross, it changes everything. When we boast in the cross, it changes everything. Paul says that the world has been crucified to God. The world has been crucified. 
The cross completely changes what we value and what we care about. Completely changes it. The gospel completely changes what we boast in. It completely changes our identity and our values. When the cross grips us, we begin to see it as the only thing that truly matters. The only thing that truly matters. Friends, Paul, Paul wants us to get this. He wants us to understand this. And at the end of this letter, he takes a pen in his hand, and he wants us to get what matters most. And this is what he says. Don't you ever think it's up to you to measure up. Don't you ever think that. Because it's not up to you. Put all of your confidence, put all of your boasting in what Jesus has done for you. If you're going to brag about anything, if you're going to go off about anything, if you're going to post about anything, brag about Jesus and his saving work. That's what we should boast about. So that's it. That's the entirety of the letter. Save a couple verses at the end. Paul concludes his book with these few simple words. He says this, verse 16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this is all that matters. From now on, he says, let's not have any more confusion about the gospel. Let's not have any more doctrinal issues about the gospel. Let nobody bother me with false false versions of the gospel. But he's glad to be a part of the people of God who get the gospel. And he prays that the grace of the Lord would be with the Galatians as they avoid false gospels and as they boast in the cross and the cross alone. I imagine Paul looking at the scroll. His scribe is probably, probably sitting next, there, next to him and he's looking back over his scroll and he just sees like him pointing to Jesus. And he sees like his job is done. And he puts the, puts the pen down and gives the nod to his scribe for the letter to be delivered. He has finished the defense of the gospel, underlining the idea that it is Jesus plus nothing. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, man, thank you for the book of Galatians. God, it has, it has fed me, it has nurtured me, it has allowed me to recognize that it's not about me over and over and over and over again that it's Jesus plus nothing. And so, God, I am so thankful that you sent your son. I am so thankful you sent your son on our behalf. On a degrading and dirty and disgusting cross. That that was the instrument of our salvation. That instrument was used to be able for your son to die so we could be reconciled to you forever. That we don't have to add anything to that. We don't have to be better. We don't have to get our lives cleaned up. We don't have to pray for a certain amount of time. We don't have to read our Bibles for a certain amount of time. We don't have to be nicer to anybody, God. That we simply need to come to you broken and contrite in our spirit and say, God, I am so sorry. 
allow me to be part of your family. And so if that's you today, if you have not yet said yes to Jesus, and you're thinking to yourself, I've been trying to be good for so long, and it doesn't seem to work. Because you are trying to add to your own salvation. I hope that you would just pray along with me now. That you would just say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I admit that. That I wake up every single day. And I continue to sin. And I will continue to sin until I'm in glory with you. But Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior but I do believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me. That that cross was the instrument used to kill your son. That ultimately he conquered death so we could be reconciled to you forever, so we could be with you forever. And because of that, God, I choose to follow you every single day of my life. There are days that it's more difficult. There are days that it's relatively easy. But God, I pray that I would do my best to to just honor you with my life as I recognize that, that I don't have, it's Jesus plus nothing when it comes to salvation. But when we become part of the family of God, we, in, we enter into the opportunity to be able to become more holy like you every single day. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.